Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? better than yesterday in terms of my I really spoke up for myself and with with my friend and uh-huh. um for podcast listeners I think we did not record this because we were just having a meeting but um we did record it but not on a podcast format yeah anyway yeah. the point is I had a friend that um had sort of tried to or did set a boundary in a really messy way that I did not receive but um and then I I was proud of myself. I just called and I like, I, it's interesting as I get older, I don't have a charge on things. Like I wasn't charged yeah. about it. I was like, listen, I mean, I was charged about it when I talked to you because that's what you do when you talk things out. But like, I just, listen, I totally appreciate that you have this issue. Um, and you don't want to hear me talk about certain things. Cause that was the whole thing is that she said, you know, it basically comes down to jealousy and envy. Um, and I get those things a hundred percent. Believe me. If you listen to the podcast, you know that like for all of my theater school experience and until like maybe four years ago was spent basically living in one state of constant less than feeling and envy. So I don't, but I'm trying not to do that anymore and I'm working on it. So anyway, I just said like, Hey, like, here's the thing. If you need to set a boundary, which it sounds like you do to not hear about certain wins of mine. I just need you to know that that's going to really affect our relationship. And also I've spent, and, and this is the core, I, 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 I whittled down, I'm trying lately to whittle down to the core issue. And so, because it just saves a lot of time in conversations, like literally it's same with pitching, same with anything, like whittle it down, whittle it. What are you really saying? And what I'm saying is I spent my whole life not feeling like I wasn't allowed to celebrate my wins, which started in my family of origin. I don't want to do that anymore. It's painful. It'll kill me. It leads to depression and anxiety. I'm not doing it anymore. So I said, if we need to take a break in general from chatting for a while, great. I'd much rather do that than, than me censor myself. I'm not, I'm not going to do that with people on my free time. Like, I feel like we have to do that in, in professional settings all the time or like as adults in, uh, in the world. Right. We can't go around saying, I mean, you can, you end up in an institution or in jail. So, um, so, and, and, and she was totally receptive and, and oh, was like, good. oh yeah, I was shocked. Um, just because that's not been my experience with people, not her, but people. Right. And, um, oh yeah. And myself. Um, and, uh, so we're going to, we're going to give it a shot to, to try it again. And then I just said, like, literally, I'm not going to. Look, I, I, everyone's got to do what they need to do, but like, I, 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 I am not willing to, yeah, not share to, to hide, um, from people I'm supposedly supposed to be close with. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, it just, it's just not working. It doesn't work out. If it worked out, I would have continued doing what I did my whole life. Well, right. It works out if you're in a people pleasing relationship where all you can get out of it is the satisfaction right. in any given moment of, of telling the person exactly what they want to hear. But of course, we've long discovered that that is not a great long term solution because it leads to all the aforementioned maladies. And, so good for you. Thank you. And, and, and not only does it lead to 
you know, a certain inevitable death, really. Yes. It, it, once you, once I know that in my heart, it doesn't work. I can't in good faith, keep people pleasing mm-hmm. because I don't have the evidence anymore that it actually does anything other than create depression. Like I have that visceral experience. So I, I, I'm not the kind of person and I don't think many people are sociopaths aside or, or psychopaths that like can pretend. So I, I'm like not going to pretend anymore that I can function that way. It's just, it's just a waste of everybody's time. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I'm, I'm about to say the world's least profound thing, but it's been profound for me because <laughs> I'm just now like really getting to it, which is the thing that you run out of steam for with the people pleasing is just simply the fact that in the effort to please other people, you, you don't please yourself. And so it'd be like trying to fill your gas tank with like daisy petals, you know, because somebody wants you to fill it and it's like, okay, well maybe it'll get somewhere for a while, but at the end of the day, you still need gas. Like you still need to meet your own needs. You still need to be in charge of your own, I mean, that's it. You need to meet your own needs. And so the the thing that ends up always underneath the people pleasing is, oh, I haven't met my own needs. And funny thing, the needs didn't disappear just because I was, you know, because I chose not to, to meet them. That's been my thing recently of like, I don't know how I was previously formulating, um, my, lack of willingness to take care of myself. I think I was formulating it as like being heroic in some way or being tough in some way, um, which it just completely isn't. It's just being afraid to like engage with me. And that's, hey, everybody, it's only you at the end. So might as well get cozy with you now and figure out how to meet your needs now. So I and totally she, agree. And she received it well. So like, that's the oh, best yeah. possible out- outcome. Yeah. She totally received it. Well, we're going to give it a shot, you know, because I, I talked to you and then I talked to my other friend and my other friend, you know, it just, everyone talks from where they're coming from. My other friend um, was like, Oh, you need to just cut her off. Like you can't ever <laughs> talk to her again. <laughs> right, she's right. crazy. She's crazy. And like, you, you can't, you, that's enough. And I was like, oh man, I could, but like, and I can relate to that too. I mean, I can really, because what that person is saying is like, it's so hurtful, you know, right. Cause that, that's an instinct we sometimes have somebody hurt us. So they're dead. Yeah. And they're crazy. Like write them off as bonkers and you don't have time for it. Here's the thing. I, I, I think it's all um, a wait and see situation. Like, you know, relationships evolve and change and, and, um, I don't want to like end the the friendship right now. I mean, if this continued, of course, but like I I give people a chance, you know, but like, yeah, it's so funny. You know, what's so funny to me about jealousy. I'm always surprised when I, when, when, when it's revealed to me in any way that anybody has any jealousy of me. Oh my God. I told miles, my husband, the exact same thing. Gina, I said, it's absurd that any, cause we, we think so low of ourselves that like, it's absurd that anyone think wants anything that I have. I'm like, wait, what? what? Yeah. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. It does not compute. It totally doesn't compute. Hey, let me run this by you. 
question that I'm not sure I've ever asked you, which is um, you, you really do have quite a lot of friends. How do you maintain your relationships? I mean, it's a lot of work, isn't it? It is a lot of work. I feel that I'm getting better at saying, okay, like, this is what I can give to you. Cause I have a, you know, I have a lot of friends that are going through a really hard stuff. You know, I talk a lot about my friend's dad is really sick and I just know, like I, I have to be able to say, this is what I'm available for. It's really hard. And then back away. It is all on me to back away. It's not them. It's not them saying, Oh, can you, no, no, no. It's me saying this. How can I be of service? Here's how I'm available to be of service in these times of trouble. And here's how I'm not. And, or I don't even have to set those rules, but I have to know with my, within myself, like, how does this feel? Like, Oh, I'm starting to feel a little bit crazy. I can't, but I feel like my friendships now, you see, it was interesting growing up. I had zero friends in high school, like real friends, like ride or dies, zero, 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 zero. I had acquaintances and stuff like that. I've talked a lot about a friend I had on here that I was like her fan, you know, and that started this whole journey to become an actor. Right. But like now the people in my life, my friends who I would consider real friends, um, I have made a priority to be there authentically and also tell the truth in the relationships. So the truth is the only thing that keeps the friendships going. And even if that truth is like, I'm not available. Like I have, I have so much shit going. Like the other day, my friend who was, who was, whose dad is sick called me twice during the day, but I did not pick up because I was literally looking for a fucking job and applying for jobs. And like, I needed to do that. So I felt there was a twinge of like, I got to pick up the phone. Like, oh God, she's called twice now. But I said, no, you know what? You got to do it. You got to take care of you. I have to. Literally, if I want a house, the other thing is having goals, right? So like really getting centered in what my goals are in the true sense. It's that Doris, my dog, has a patch of grass and we have a patch of grass. I talked to the realtor who said, in order to make that happen, you have to do these things, which is bring in a certain amount of money a year, each of us, my husband and I. Okay, that's the case. And I got to do certain things. And that means doing them, even if the phone rings and my friend is, yeah. wants to talk. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard. So, so just like with everything else, as you kind of talking about winnowing away, when you winnow away at the parts of yourself that are working that it just makes your relationships it just makes it sounds like it just makes everything come into greater focus for you greater focus and you don't have to lie I don't have to lie and say oh like I didn't pick up because I was no and I told the truth I said hey I'm so sorry I didn't get back to you yesterday I was literally like knee deep in like focus land trying to get this interview for this job or whatever and that's Mm -hmm. the truth of what was going on I wasn't with someone else I wasn't partying I wasn't I told the truth about the situation and then I called the person at the end of the day and just said like this was my day it was fucking intense sorry to pick up the phone but like I had to do this and she loves you so she understands right and And that's the thing right Gina if people don't get it then that's on them and then maybe they need a different kind of friend and like that's Mm -hmm. just the truth and it's not I don't even fault people same with with me if I'm in the reverse if I and then and then that's why it's good to have more than one friend right because then you can go to they say this in program all the time like you need a phone list you don't need one person so that if that person's not available you go to someone else and say hey I'm really having a hard time 
you have people in your in your in your in your uh rolodex that you can call and say yeah you know instead of just having one and that's what i i did growing up was like you would either have one friend or then it became one boy, right? One man that I was mm-hmm. obsessed with that was going to solve all my problems. It, mm-hmm. it, it did not work out. It did not work out for me. Like that was misery. Yeah, that that's that I've done that my whole life, too. And really what it does is it leads to a lot of burnout because everybody's if, if you're putting all of your eggs in one basket and somebody steps on your basket you have no eggs left so maybe I mean, diversify diversify your eggs is basically the thing but also when i think of when i think of how i behaved in particular with people but in particular with men that i wanted to love me i am so aware of how terrible that must have been for them and not oh, even in a, not yeah. even in a, like, mm-hmm. oh, poor them. Like the bind I put them in is intolerable. Right. Like no wonder they were like, you're, you, I can't deal with, like, they were like, had to set a boundary of like, go away because it's intolerable. How they couldn't take care of my needs. Yeah. Even if it was their job, which it wasn't. So right. I went to the wrong person to do the wrong job and only had one of them. Oh my God. No, no, no. Dude, that's, that, that hit me. That's so, that's so real. I'm just flashing on, you know, these sort of pseudo relationships, things that I was calling relationships that I had in college and right after where I did that. I made that, you know, the second somebody showed me one tiny iota of interest, I'm like, I'm in love with you. And we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. Yes. And, and you know, what happened in 99% of these relationships is they're like, oh, cool. You want to have sex with me? Great. <laughs> and, you, and you're not going to ask me for anything else. You're, you know, because in my mind, I'm holding on to all of these expectations, but I'm never, ever, ever saying anything about what I need. I'm just sitting over here praying that you're going to call me. Oh my God. Or, or page me. <laughs> That's the case <laughs> for me. Praying that, you know, whatever. And like to the point that I just had no awareness that this one guy who only ever called me at midnight, I, I just had no aware. I just thought, oh, well, right. yeah, he sleeps late. <laughs> he started late this day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, bless your heart. Like literally bless your heart. You couldn't see it. I once, this is so embarrassing, and I'm friends with the guy now, Jonah, so I can say, I once, I shit you not, he wouldn't pick up because he was smart and wanted space, right? I called him from work. I'm supposed to be working at Nicolas Cage's office, okay? That's my job I'm paid for. And I and and I think he tracked it how many times I called in four hours. 89 oh my god oh and and you and probably from times three to 89 years like you fucker just dialing it yeah. over like yeah. yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh what what the hell no sick 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 person sick sick, sick person sick. needs help especially when you realize after all these years that i mean 
you 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 now have a real and true relationship with Jonah. He's a person that you love, whatever. But at the time, you, no, you, it dude, was not about no Jonah. Person. And and also no person. It's about no person. It's about no person. It's just like me, 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 me. I need <laughs> you to feed me, feed me, feed me. There's this line in, in, in my one of my favorite movies of all time is What About Bob? Yeah. And, and there's, there's this, I, I relate so wholly to Bob. <laughs> one time he's talking to Dr. Dr. Leo Marvin. He says, "Give me, give me, give me. I need, I need, I need." <laughs> oh my God! Today on the podcast, we are talking to Brian James Polak. Brian is a playwright, and he's the host of American Theater Magazine's The Subtext podcast. And we had a great conversation about New Hampshire and Meisner and improv and circuitous routes to playwriting. So please enjoy our conversation with Brian James Polak. comes out well as a person with a highly unpronounceable last name i mean unless you know me i i, I feel your i feel your pain what is so, the pronunciation Brian Pol- of your last name oh, by the way Pol- polici i've said that to myself you- properly then cool <laughs> yay oh, really? are you serious you before my telling you you knew how to pronounce it? i mean i think I, I think that was what i wanted it to be okay it sounds cool. oh well that's I, I, you the know, other choice is police. I, I tip my hat to you, sir. Or yeah, well, that's police. Mostly people say police oh, yeah, or police. Yeah. So. I didn't want it to be police. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and me both. So, Brian Polak, congratulations. You survived theater school. You survived uh, a playwriting MFA at USC, if I'm correct. correct. Yeah. Okay. But you had a circuitous route oh, there. I got to say, like, uh, looking at your website, I... I have so many things to ask you, but we have a little bit of time, so I won't rush into it. But I just want to say your mission statement, your like are is brilliant. So people should go, go, go to your website. We'll give them their information later. But anyway, yes, you had a circuitous route to where you are now. Um, more so than others, I would say. So um, but congratulations. And <laughs> and I just want to know how did you end up to where are you in Chicago, right? I'm in minute? Madison, Wisconsin right now. You started in New Hampshire and you went to undergrad for philosophy. First of all, what made you pick philosophy? Yeah, I literally had no uh, ambitions or interests coming out of high school going into undergrad. I really only went to undergrad because that's what most of my friends were doing. And it was what my mom said I was doing. So the one smart choice I made was uh, I knew based on my personality that I would drown if I went to a large college with like thousands and thousands of students. So I, that the, the, the stack that I had included like the university or Boston university and, um, New Haven, not Yale, but the University of New Haven, uh, and colleges that were just like a little bit bigger. And when I pulled them all out and looked for small colleges in a city away from New Hampshire, I had one. And it was Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, which is the DC area. And that's why I applied there. No other, I never visited. That's fantastic. Never went to see it, just, just applied. And got in. 
I also, and my mother made me apply to Keene State College and the University of New Hampshire. I got into all three and, uh, and I was like, I want to go to Marymount. Why? Just because it was away from New Hampshire. Sure. I had no clue what the college was like. And my mother said, fine, if you get a financial aid package that will make the cost equivalent to what it would be at, say, University of New Hampshire, then she let me go. And I did. I got the I got the financial aid package I needed and she let me go. And I saw the school for the first time when I moved into my dorm. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. So at that point, what am I going to major in? Still no idea. I oh my I chose Wait, that's what they should call philosophy. It's the, no I majored in no oh, yeah. idea. I still have no yeah. idea. So here's my here's my reasoning. Right. I at that age and for several years following was desperate to have an identity of some kind. Like who am I? And I I felt very beige and boring. I felt like there was nothing interesting about me. Uh, because I had no focus, uh, I was not um, going to become a great athlete. Uh, I was essentially nothing to, from my own point of view. And I chose philosophy because it sounded interesting. I knew zero about philosophy. Nobody knows anything right? about philosophy. I still don't. Uh, but uh, I, it was there was nothing about the sort of like academic approach to philosophy and studying it and learning it no clue didn't care was like i'm a philosophy major and saying those words i'm a philosophy major is all i needed yeah hmm. it's interesting i think you're younger than we are but i there is this okay well i'm just making <laughs> shit up based on your lovely physical appearance and your snappy website but i i i, I there was something about the time period that that I, at least I, I grew up in the eighties and the, and the nineties um, of like this real vague sort of parents aren't that involved. Cause we've talked to so many people of this generation. Parents weren't involved. I don't think in any of this other than you have to make sure you can pay this or whatever, other than the financial part, there was no like figuring out with parents about who we were as kiddos. I don't think. And like taking the time, I don't know if you had that experience, but like, it sounds like from what you're saying, your mom was mostly focused on the financial aspect, understandably, but like, I'm not sure that's the only re decision that should go into a college where you're going to decide who you are as an adult. No, no. And I was so in the dark about this school that uh, I received like the student handbook a month before, like during the summer before I, I went to school and I'm thumbing through this handbook and I see that um, the president of Marymount had an SR before their name. And the name was like, I couldn't even tell the, the gender of the name, but it just said SR. I can't remember their name, but it was like a weird name. And yeah. there were pictures of nuns. And I was like, why the hell are there nuns in this handbook? And what does SR mean? And my mom is like, you idiot. This is a Catholic college. You're going to a Catholic college. That's SR means sister. Right. A nun is the president of your college. <laughs> I didn't even know that now. 
I was like, are you serious? But so while you were getting the degree, were you thinking, okay, I'm just going to, I'll end up going for my PhD and being a professor? Oh, no. No. Okay. <laughs> no, my first two years of undergrad, I didn't even think about the classes I was taking. I studied becoming friends with people. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Very that's important. Very important. I did for my first two years, and I had like a C average after my sophomore year. I was, a ter- I was just a terrible, terrible student. And this connects to why I end up in grad school years later. Uh, which so that's why I mentioned it. I was a very, very uh, terrible student. I did the minimal amount of work. I showed up to class the the least amount of time possible, and all I cared about was making friends with people and um, being you know, trying to be happy. Like that, which was a struggle for me in that age, uh, just being happy. But I just wanted to be friends with people, and uh, that's really all I did. But then when I got to be like a junior, senior. Uh, I was like, I got to just like, I got to try a little bit harder. And I did until my final semester where I just mailed it in for the whole semester. But I had no thought about the day after graduation and all of the days that followed that zero until not until like maybe two months after I graduated is when I started to think about what what's my future now. Well, I mean, but like literally what were you doing when you graduated? <laughs> so I, I got a little bit of money from like, fa- you know, family members, uh, like congrats, here's a check, right. you know, uh, and I spent the next two months, I moved into like, I moved into a house with like seven or eight other oh. disgusting, dirty men. Yes. And, yes. and, oh, uh, I dated all those yeah. men. I dated. Oh, so gross. This place was so gross. Uh, and I spent all my money on rent and living and going to the movies and buying food. And, uh, I would say around the end of June, I graduated like the first week of May and around the end of June, beginning of July, I was like, I, <laughs> I'm running out of money. I oh shit, that's only six weeks. I need to right? get a job. And so what I did, I made a couple choices. Some were good, some were set me on a really bad trajectory for a long time. But I I was aware that credit card companies oh, will give God. credit cards to college students at a, like yes. the like the threshold to get accepted with a credit card at that age yes. was very low. So I got two credit cards. Oh, shit. Uh, so that extended my uh, ability to live for a while because it's f- credit cards, as you know, are free money. Sure. sure. <laughs> it's, it's just part of America. Yeah. yeah. So I had I had that free money uh, and I spent that, too. And, and then I start I, like it's now like July and I'm like, I need to get it's only a month later. I, I, think I need to get a job. <laughs> like what? How am I going to get a job? I, I I had I had an internship as an undergrad at the patent and trademark office, so I I, I had like some researchy type of experience on my one line resume. Oh god! And I part so oh, the and then the other thing was I was an RA, uh, a resident assistant for two years, and uh, so those are my two areas of experience. <laughs> <laughs> and a degree of philosophy, which is not going to get you a job. It'll get you maybe oh to God. law school or to the seminary or some shit like that. 
Um, so I started looking for jobs and uh, I started in DC and then I started to expand that circle because I couldn't find anything. And then, uh, and I was applying for job. I was applying for tons of jobs and I was going, I was almost caught in like several like pyramid schemes, multi-level marketing <laughs> things like, yeah, you're signed up for this interview, Brian, come to this meeting and yeah. you show up yes. and there's like 40 people sitting yes. in a prison. And I was like, this doesn't seem right. Yes. This doesn't seem right. You know, all. side note, side note, my husband got involved with those and he's 54, like just a couple of years ago. Like online, <laughs> Miles. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, it's an interview. I'm like, dude, this is a Zoom mar- multi-level marketing fucking presentation. This is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, yeah. And he had to, and then he like logged out really fast. Anyway, I did not know that MLMs advertise just like as a job. Yes. job. that's yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so sinister. A hundred percent. So let me stop you for a second. Were any of the adults in your life? reflecting back to you what you were doing saying to you like hmm you're hoping to parlay this ra thing into a career or i mean was anybody saying to you i mean okay so you're a playwright you that's 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 the that's the ps to the story is that you're a playwright now and you and you have your own podcast but who who was reflecting back to you, like what you're good at and what you might want to pursue? Or was it more like what Boz and I had, which is nobody and was saying anything to you and <laughs> you were just expected to cover your own rent? Oh, yeah. I don't remember ever having a conversation with any adult in my life about what I'm good at and what I could and fuck, what I could man? do. As a matter of fact, I had a guidance counselor in high school. At, during that period of time when they're, they're guidance counseling students about what to do after high school, telling me to go into the trades to work, to get, yeah. to get a job working on cars or, or right. something like that, because I wasn't college material. And I was so right. offended oh. by this person. I can't even remember their name. Uh, but, and if I could remember this guidance counselor's name, I would be, sh- I would be like shouting it out because they they were, yeah. they were, I thought this was the worst advice ever. And I was like, by the time when I got accepted to the three colleges I, I applied to, and granted, they weren't like Ivy League schools, but still, this person with no, that isn't college material got accepted to three schools. I was like, fuck mm-hmm. you. Like, yeah. I got mm-hmm. in and I was sure to go to the office and be like, by the way, I just wanted to let you know, I applied to three schools and got into all of them. And I'm, I, right. I'm going, I'm moving to Washington, D.C. So, See you later. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, but, yeah. See you later. I, I didn't like my family and I. Uh, even back then, my mom, my mom divorced my biological father when I was eight. Remarried my stepfather when I was eleven. Had two kids with him uh, when I was like thirteen and fifteen. Is when my little sisters were born. So uh, they occupied a significant amount of focus from my from my parents i had an older sister karen uh who two years older than me she was ahead of me in this whole go to college start a life kind of thing she was just she was a very good student very focused knew what she wanted to do and i think my 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 mother was just like i've got kids i need to focus on because by the time i was going to college they were three and eight or they were they were like three and five um yeah or something like that or whatever um so 
she had no bandwidth and that's just not really her personality type. And so there was a part of me that wanted to be funny and wanted to be involved in theater. Um, but what happened, so in, in, in undergrad, I had, there were people in school that were like uh, putting on plays like uh, on their own. There wasn't a theater department in undergrad. If there was, I probably would have, I probably would have found it. I, I can't be right. sure, but I have a feeling I would have found it if there was like a theater department and theater classes and that kind of stuff. But I, but I remember a moment when uh, somebody I knew on campus wrote a one-act play uh, and asked me to be a tree in it. Fantastic. And I was like, that sounds like fun. So I did that. And I was like, this is kind of fun. And then uh, every year the school produces uh, a musical. And they were producing Little Shop of Horrors. And I was very involved in campus activities. Uh, my main responsibility was like booking bands to come perform. Oh, yeah. I, I really liked doing that. But I was kind of like, uh, you know, I was an RA and I was a student activity uh, nerd. So I got roped into auditioning for Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, I got cast as, if you know the play. Yeah. Mushnik. Oh, yeah. So Mushnik. The owner of the flower shop, who was the old mm -hmm. man. And main, mm -hmm. I have a feeling mm -hmm. main, the main reason I got cast as Mushnik was because his songs were just easier to sing. Uh, but the funny thing is, I, you know, you were commenting on my age earlier. Uh, when I look a little bit younger than I am. And back then I looked younger than I was. So, and you were playing an old and I man. I had long hair. Like oh. I had long hair pulled back in a ponytail. And I had to play this old, this old man. And they aged me with makeup and putting gray in my long hair. Of course. Mushnik has yeah. long, luxurious, curly hair, right? And um, it was a bad experience. I'll have to say oh. because of the pro really because of the process, but I very much enjoyed it. And, uh, but it wasn't the thing I was going to continue doing. So I'll stop there. Wait, what was bad about it? Yeah. What was bad it's about just it? like interpersonal dynamics. Like the cast was great. I loved everybody I worked with in the cast, but it was sort of like the dynamic with the director and then the main uh, administrator on campus who was responsible for, for hiring the director and making sure the show goes on it was kind of a nightmare. Like the director was, I remember one day the director, sorry, there's this fly. Oh, it's okay. Um, the director canceled a rehearsal one, one night because of an illness and his, like his daughter was ill or something. And the administrator from campus refused to let us have the night off. So he oh. came in and try and started directing and I didn't have all that experience. Like we now know the dynamics of the rehearsal room, right? And 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 all of that. Sure. I didn't know. I wasn't. I didn't have that experience yet because this was my really my first experience. But my instinct was, the director's been telling us what to do, and you, per, you, have not been in this room and don't know what he's been telling us. So why are you kind of in here usurping this? It doesn't seem right. Very weird. So I. 
I rebelled weird. against it. I left rehearsal and it kind of like uh, left a bad taste in my mouth uh, about. But you loved it. You loved the experience. It's because of the other people, like the people in your cast oh, that you loved. For sure. 100%. Yeah. That okay. I loved, I love, so love, love being with that group. So would you say you have like a, like there's a rebel part of you, like a big rebel part of you? Because like my ass would have been like, well, I'll just sit here and be quiet. And like, it's okay. Mm -hmm. An adult is doing bad things. I'll just sit and be quiet. You must Mm -hmm. have something in you that was like, nope. Yeah. And this really came about at this, in this, you know, 18 to 22 age range when I'm an undergrad, this sort of like questioning of authority, I became very rebellious and uh, Mm. I just didn't trust authority who were, I didn't trust people giving instructions without context. You can't tell mm-hmm. me what to do. I need to know why. And I need mm. to, I need to understand why you're telling me what to do. And when you're, when that's not happening, I don't trust you. Hmm. Huh. Okay. Interesting. I, I, I think that's interesting. And I also, it ties into, and you, we don't have to talk about this, but like you said that you made some bad life choices and I, I love bad life choices. We love bad life choices. What, We've what, made so many of our I've own. made so many. And it's interesting that you brought it up that took you down a bad path. Do you want to, do you want to just say any more about yeah, that? I mean, I mean, a lot of it started with finances. I, because as I mentioned before, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have like that adult person. I did. I wasn't trained with finances, you know. So I just spent um, naively and got myself into debt right away. And uh, yeah. and and even later in later in my twenties, when I was getting jobs that paid more money, I I spent everything I earned because my focus was on living life. So every time I had another $500 in my account, I was like, oh, that's a flight to San Francisco for a long weekend to see friends. I pick, I was always picking up bills at dinner for my friends just because I could. I was just like, I was like, I have $300 in my savings account. So sure, I can afford this $85 meal for everybody. Uh, So, so a lot of my bad choices were uh, around that, but uh, the other other bad choices were like, I got this job as a research assistant in D.C., and it was my first sort of real-ish job, uh, and I enjoyed it, and I was there for a little over a year, and I asked for a raise because the way my job worked, like I had to invoice the, the work I was doing, and I knew I was, I was invoicing my entire year's salary every week. Oh, and my shit. salary was really low. So I went to I went yeah. to my my boss and I was just like I want a I want a pay raise and he was like how much do you want? And I said $6,000 a year more. And he was like no way that's out of the question. I can give you $1,500 uh, a year more. And I was like listen, I know how much the books are not secret here. Like I know how much we're earning. Right. I know how much I'm personally earning for the for the this company. And he said, he said, he goes, his name was Brent. Brent said, you will never make the, that amount of money doing this work. And I said, in that moment, without any forethought, hadn't been thinking about it. I said, I quit and I'm moving to Boston. But in this, in this time period, before I said that, uh, a key moment of my life that connects me to theater directly for the first time was 
uh, I got this research assistant job and I started it and I was working it for a few weeks. I was going to work in the morning, coming home at night, going to work in the morning, coming home at night, hanging out with my friends on the weekends, repeating over and over again. And I did this for a few weeks and I was just like, wait, is this life? Is 45 years of this rinse and repeat? I, I can't do that. Like, like this is terrible. So I had this, I had this existential crisis and I said, I need to do something. And the other part of it was, do I know everybody I'm ever going to know? Like, do I, am I only going to date the people? How do I meet other people? How do, like, how do, like, is this the entirety of my world? This job in a series of jobs, nine to five, and then here are my 20 friends for the rest of my life. Like, no shade, no shade to my friends. Love them. But I just had some kind of instinct for more. So uh, I thought about that experience uh, in undergrad in being in a play. And I thought about my friends in high school and my friend Corey. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to take an acting class. I think that would be fun. And I would meet new people because I don't know anybody involved in this world at all. So I took an acting class and it was a Meisner class, which was Ah. jumping into the deep end. Um, uh, But I was amongst a group of people who like, it was like, I don't remember how long the class was, but 10 weeks. And then we would re-up for another 10 weeks and the group kind of stayed together. So here I am with a group now and we're learning this acting together. And I kind of, I never understood Meisner, but I realized I had an aptitude for what we were doing. So when I, when I drew the line on the sand, said I'm moving to Boston, the things that I were, the things I was, I was, I was losing were my friends in DC and this acting class. Uh, but I was like, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice I'm going to make um, because I just feel inside that I need this. And, and so I said to my acting teacher, I said, do you know, do you happen to know anybody in Boston that teaches what you teach? And I can just sort of pick up what we're doing. And he said, nope, I do not. But what you should do is take improv. And uh, that piece of advice that I took changed the trajectory of my life and to the, to the, to where I am right now as a, as a, wow. And so what do you think that that teacher saw? Why improv for you? Like why that, why not say, Hey, you should go to, you know, uh, Boston university for acting. I have no idea. Uh, I, I had, I didn't have the ability to see myself uh, and I still, I never did have the ability to see myself as an actor. Uh, I wasn't aware of what improv was. I think maybe vaguely, I think, I think the British version of whose line is it anyway, entered uh, my psyche at some point. Uh, So I had a very small idea of what the concept of improv was, but Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what he saw. No clue. Uh, But uh, you know, a couple months later I was living in Boston and I was looking for improv classes and I found an improv theater that was just starting 
a, a school. So they were, they were booking their very first class ever. And I signed up and uh, got in and worked through the six whatever levels of this improv thing. And when it was done, the theater was auditioning for essentially like a B team. Like they had their main stage group. They wanted a second group to do touring shows, to do off night mm-hmm. performances. And I auditioned for it and got in. So, uh, so that's, I mean, the advice to go seek out improv and taking that advice changed my life. Getting cast in this uh, improv group, that getting cast and starting to perform is what really changed the trajectory. Interesting. Short digression. I have a question for the both of you. Do you guys think that this, do you think there's any connection between not having adults reflecting back to you who you are or not enough and these existential crises? I mean, what I'm hearing you say is your whole life has been an improv because you've had to just sort of like figure it out literally in the moment, literally when the moment occurs to you which may be why you were, you know, drawn, you know, to to improv. But like, what do you guys think about this connection between, I don't know that if you had had a very directed experience in your childhood, I don't know if you would have gotten to the place of, is this all there is? Is this, is this, you know what I mean? Because if people who, who get put on a path by their, their, the adults in their lives, often don't really question. No. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think there's something about our generation or that that not having, right. So I definitely feel like I had to figure it out on my own, all of it, every single thing. And that led to crises, but also it led to opportunity, right? So like maybe for you, Brian, it's like, we didn't have a lot of direction. So it was internally directed, right? We were internally directed and we acted in the moment and it made for some huge mistakes for me anyway, but also some huge freaking opportunities, right? So like going to Boston, I mean, that is like, whoa, like intense. Like you didn't know, you were how old? Uh, you went to 23, Boston. T- I was 23 Dude. turning 24. Exactly when I went to LA, I didn't know what was happening. I was like, I'll just go to Los Angeles. That'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. You just bump along to the next thing and the next thing. But so then how did you get from improv to the MFA? Yeah. So, uh, like you, you described my, my path, my life path as circuit, God, I can't say that word. Circuitous. Okay. It's like a charcuterie board. Just say charcuterie board. My life has been a charcuterie board of multiple cheeses. Uh, so, so it's still circuitous to get from from the from that point A to the point B of, of grad school. But I so I did this improv for two years, and what I learned in that two year period was I loved being with the group. I loved traveling for for shows. I loved performing on our off nights during the week. I love these. This became my my group of close close friends. Uh, love them, love them all to this day. Uh, and I'm still friends with some of them. Uh, and, but what I also learned was that, um, my Achilles heel of inability to sing was coming back to haunt me. 
because music, oh, musical improv and song parodies were a big part of what this improv theater was focused on. And that just wasn't my skill set. Uh, my skill set really was as a supporting player. I was, I'm, I was very, at the time, I was very, very good at supporting scenes. I was very good at being like glue for the friend cluster. Um, mm-hmm. But I just what like, I, I was just not a great improv actor. You know, like you, I could not take the stage. I couldn't command the stage and be funny and entertain people. But if you two were doing a scene together and I could watch that scene be happening and recognize it needs an, it needs an influx of energy of some sort, I could bring that, you know, and I could help the scene that you're creating become better. Um, And that, that's not, that's, that's a skill set that plenty of people have, right? So I wasn't like an in-demand type of person. So uh, after two years, the higher I, I, I saw that all of my friends were periodically being called up to the main stage to fill in. Some of them were being promoted to full-time main stage and other people were joining uh, the second group. And I was one of the original members and I was the only original member never called up. And I knew I was, I saw what that meant. Uh, about two years in, the artistic directors of the theater uh, told us that everybody had to re-audition for their role. Oh, shit. And I knew what that meant. So one of my bad, one of my sort of rash decisions that, I talk about, that I've talked about is uh, the next rehearsal after learning that, I just walked into rehearsal and quit. Uh, and wow. I walked away from it because I could not, I recognize now the reason is I couldn't stomach being faced with being sure. cut. And I, that fucking and sucks. I was, I was developing a, a self-awareness. Like I'm aware of who I am as a performer. I recognize that I'm probably not going to make it. So why go through this process, which is going to be horrible. And it's going to be like depressing. So I walked away and, uh, um, and that was the end of my, that was the end of my improv life. Uh, but I, so I was very sad and I missed being part of a group. So not. You love you a group. You love a group. You're a group kind I of guy. I am so happy collaborating with people. Like that's where I am at my absolute happiest. Um, my like my goal every time I'm writing something, I'm like I got I want to be around that goddamn table. Like all I think oh, about is the table, yeah. being around the table with other people working on a play. Like that is everything to me. Community, community, hundred percent. And yet you did pick a pretty isolated. I mean, you know, obviously if you're if you're a very yeah. Obviously, the goal is to be a playwright who's always being produced and that where you're always going to the theater where they're producing your play and you're available to, yeah. to continue working on it. But that doesn't happen. No, for I became a playwright, playwright who's never produced. So it's like it's okay. like so, so sad. Right. But the reason I ended up as a playwright was uh, after the improv experience, not long after I left the left the improv uh, people that I met doing improv or starting a theater company 
cast me in a play. So it was like, now I'm like studying, I'm now I'm performing a play and now I'm uh, r- helping run a theater company and, uh, and producing theater and part of the acting ensemble of the theater company. And, uh, and so that was like the next few years of my life uh, was doing this. Um, and so I didn't really have the experience of auditioning and be, having the life of an actor. It was like, I was cast. I was just yeah. cast. Uh, but like the self-awareness that I talked about earlier doing improv came back to haunt me again. Uh, I never, because I never studied theater. I never felt comfortable uh, performing. I, I was always in my head. I was never inside the character. And there was a, we were, I was performing in a, a, a two-hander titled, it's called The Sugar Plum. And uh, lights open on me, lights go down on me and the other. So I'm like on stage from lights up to lights down. And uh, I remember performing one night and it was like one of those things where it's running for three or four weeks, you know, in a small black box theater. Uh, but I remember performing and uh, one particular night I'm doing my, uh, um, I'm going over here, I'm picking up the newspaper, I'm, I'm doing all my blocking, I'm reciting my lines, and then there's a track in my head going, what the hell does this play mean? Why are you doing this? Why this newspaper? Why are you saying these lines? I had Philosophy. Is that philosophy? I don't know if it's, <laughs> I think it was actually more literal. Like, I did oh. not understand the story what my care, who my oh. character was, I knew, I understood nothing. And it gave me so much anxiety performing. Uh, and I did a couple more, a couple more plays. Uh, and I really enjoyed being part of this uh, company and I would have kept going forever, but uh, people started to age. P- uh, the two founders who were married together um we're having a child and they moved to Ohio. I took over uh, being the artistic director for a minute. And in this time period, I started to write because I knew that for a couple of reasons. One, I just knew that acting wasn't the thing. And I still had that emptiness I needed to fill. And I still wanted to be part of this art form that I was starting to love. But I also, at the time, met somebody who was a writer, and I started to meet writers for the first time. And uh, through through them, sort of started to understand what craft was. Uh, like, I met a lot of very serious writers and writers who were making their living either as writers or as writers slash teachers. And, uh, and it was, like, inspiring having conversations with them and just, and just the concept of craft just really made sense to me so i decided i'm i think writing is the thing i want to do and i started to do it and when i started to do it i'm now at this point in my 30 31 32 i'm in my early 30s and and i'm like i think this is the thing this might be the thing uh light bulbs were going off you know and i never would have gotten there had it had I not started at improv, gotten into theater, and so it, because the reason I was writing plays is because I was performing plays, like you know, and I wasn't a reader. I wasn't like reading books and short stories and poems, so that wasn't 
what was motivating me or what I was inspired to write. Wow. So well, I'm here. Oh, so go ahead, Buzz. No, 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 no. What I am also hearing you talk about a lot is just you're in a constant quest for meaning, uh, which, you know, is the thing that brings a lot of people to writing, not just playwriting. Um, But now that you have settled on playwright, do you find the meaning in it? Do you find like I, I feel like when you really find your avocation, whether or not it's your vocation, what you feel is I've, I've plugged in, like I've been floating in the miasma and now I've, now I've attached and this is my organism now. Do you, do you have that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I started writing then it took me several years to get in, to get to grad school, complete a degree and then have the post-grad school experience. Uh, And through the ups and downs, the constant rejections and all of that, I mean, they all matter to me. Like I, I'm always sad when I get rejected, but I'm at the point now where nothing's pushing me off this. Uh, the thing that, I, that I, I've repeated over and over again is that uh, I will likely die under a pile of unproduced plays. And I'm accepting of that, you know? So at first, when I first said that, out loud, it was like I was bemoaning the state of my playwriting career. And now it's fine, you know, because I uh, I love doing it and I love trying to be better and trying to be a, become a better writer. And I love connecting with people through writing and theater. Um, but I, I'm probably going to continue doing it regardless of the of how the theater industry responds to my work i'll probably continue doing it um until i'm literally incapable of doing it anymore like physically and mentally so you're the person who is who's most closely connected with what we're doing here because you have a podcast you interview playwrights what is would you say kind of a key difference between playwrights and actors in terms of their training Oh, mm. I think that uh, the playwright experience is is much. It seems much more independent and isolated uh, than the actor's experience because, as I am understanding the actor, I am not an actor. I didn't go through uh, theater school as an actor, but the way I'm understanding it is, there's very much a more of a, a a cohort mentality where you're experiencing the traumas together. Like you're having your own independent experience, but you're in this group and it's, it's uh, the intensity is, is shared in a way that yeah. with playwrights, the intensity is not as shared. It's not. So you don't have the same thing in, in a playwright program where you feel like, Oh, we all, you know, went through this battle together? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely felt by the end of my, my program was three years at USC and I had a cohort of three. And by the end of that three-year program, because of this, because of specific things that went on during our three years, I really felt like I went through a battle with my cohort and we survived in the end. Like there was this feeling of togetherness and and just sort of like, journey um 
but it was, and I can't speak for the other two of my cohort, but uh, I, I can only assume it, if you talked to either of them, they would have a lot of different things to say about the experience, you know. Did you start out with many more or or was it always just the three? Yeah, the you? program by design is a cohort of three for each year. So there's nine people, oh. there's nine playwrights in the program at any, at any given time. Wow. Did you did you interact with the acting students? Oh, yes, definitely. There was a I think in my first year, I think in my first year and my and my second year, we had shared classes. Um so I so I okay. think in my first year, first semester, I had a shared class with the first first year act. So it was like first year and first years together in a text analysis class. And then I think that same year, I had a class, the first years plus second year actors in another sort of text analysis class. And then in the second year, uh, I had a class with, I can't remember what year actor uh, program it was, which, yeah, I can't remember if it was the first or second or third year actors, but we had another class that was um, about uh, generative work, about collaboration and creating work hmm. together. Uh, so yeah, so over the course of three years, I had three classes with them and the program not being particularly large, you know, you're always around each other, you know, and when you are trying to do put together like a quick first reading of a script before you submit it for something, you know, those MFA actors would be the ones you, you'd reach out to first. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll cut this part out. But do you, did you go there in the what year did you go? What years did you go? Uh, I graduated in 2014, in May of 2014. Um, okay. Started it. So I started in the fall of 2011. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so you're wait. So does that mean you're much younger than us? Or did you have I'm 48 a right now? Break? Oh, okay, so you that so you did the, because you did the circuitous route. You yeah, did, I was thirty. Um, I think I was thirty-seven when I started. I was the wow. I was the old person in the program, and it really led to uh, a lot of conflict. I think. Oh, yeah. Wow. Say more. Yeah. What happened there? Uh, well, I think you know, going back to some things I said in the in the first part of this, that I was not a good student when I was an undergrad and that experience of being a terrible student and not being focused or interested in anything uh, academic or professional, that was, I carried that with me through all of the years after graduating undergrad and through my twenties into my thirties. And when I found playwriting as like the thing I really cared about uh, and I made the decision I wanted to try to go to grad school, I was very, very serious about it. I wanted to get a 4.0. I wanted to be present in every single class. I wanted to milk the experience for everything it was worth because I I was also working in theater at this time. So I kind of had like a, a 360 degree view of what this experience will lead to and not lead to and could potentially be. And there and I realized there were no promises made with an MFA. And that I'm not getting an MFA because it's going to give me X, Y, and Z. I went to get my MFA because I wanted to be in school. I wanted to study this. I wanted to be in the classroom. I wanted to have discussions with the uh, with the you know with my classmates and my teachers. And I wanted this educational experience. 
And that's the energy I brought in. And I also had, you know, all of this ex- life experience and professional work experience in the theater. Right. So I brought all of this with me. And uh, it, I think, and again, this is from my own perspective. If you talked to uh, others in my program, you, you might get a completely different answer. But from my perspective, especially in the first half of the three years, I had uh, an intensity that I think made it hard to be in class with me for some <laughs> folks because, you know, every, everybody yeah. is very different. People are introverted. People are extroverted. People behave in classrooms and, and engage in the work in very different ways. And for me, particularly at the very beginning, I was so excited to be in grad school. Uh, I was just so intense about doing the work. And if you weren't as serious as I was, I had a problem with you. That's so interesting because that's exactly what we're, we hear from actors, same thing, that go into acting conservatories and the rest of us are like drinking Mickey's Big Mouth 40s on the sidewalk and the and they're like actually trying to act and like into it. And it's- The MFAs of, you mean, right? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. well, even, even people that are like serious business actors and the rest of us are trying to just figure it out. I could see how it would be really fucking annoying to be- like around people who maybe don't have their shit together. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of conflict with one, uh, with, and I, I don't think this is, I mean, cause it's really more of a reflection on me and my own behavior than on them. But, um, Jesse, who was in my cohort, he was much closer to having completed undergrad, uh, I don't think he went straight from undergrad into grad school, but there wasn't a lot of time that passed from undergrad to grad school for him. So our age difference was huge. And I, uh, at the very first semester, I got so irritated with him. Um, And I called, like I pulled him aside and I called him out and good for you. But really, but here's the other in the moment, I was like, good for me. And I, I was doing what I felt like I needed to do. And I thought I was giving a gift to to Jesse. But sure. in... Re- in re- <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking in about. In retrospect, who gives a shit? It's yeah. none of my business. Everybody's on their own journey. Let anyone do what they want to do to get through it. Like, like... Okay, I guess, yeah, and I guess what I say good for you is the fact that you didn't, uh, you did that instead of passive-aggressively acted out Mm. shit during class, which is what the rest of us would have done. I mean, I would have done. Instead, you took the person aside, like, look, great, granted, it was probably, you know, whatever. But I'm glad you did it instead of, like, we're just an asshole in class, because that's what most of us did, really. Yeah, well, I, tr- you know, I tried not to be, and who, and I'm not the one to say whether I was an asshole in class or yeah. not, because I, I could have been, I could have lacked the awareness to know whether or not, from somebody else's perspective, I was an asshole. But I really tried not to be. I tried to just be in charge of my experience uh, as much as I possibly can, because uh, ultimately what what I came around to by the end was that just to use Jesse as an example, again, uh, he's a good person, right? Like that's the most important thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like, and he, like, he's not a bad person. He's a good, he's a good person. 
And that's why I, I, in retrospect, I come around to um, like, what is it, my business, how somebody else decides to, you know, participate in class or not. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting because like I, I, I do, it leads me to the question of like mentorship and like having older people in our lives and younger, but well, Gina had brought up the point of having like a, a mentor that's younger than you, didn't you, Gina? So I think we need mentors that are younger than us and mentors that are older than us. And he maybe was a mentor, like a spiritual guru in some way for you because he pushed your buttons and shit like that. But I wonder if we asked Jesse what he thought if it, cause people have pulled, cause someone pulled me aside on set once when I was young on ER and said what the fuck are you actually doing you're like behaving poorly and I was mortified and also hated their guts but really they saved me later I'm just saying I'm not saying you did that for Jesse but you could have and I was like oh it was clunky the way they did it my feelings were hurt they also caused me to not lose jobs in the future mm. just FYI mm. just throwing it out there mm. anyway so so yeah I just so you, 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 here's my question about USC, just like a technical question. Like when you apply to this program, this, this playwriting program, did you, did they, is it one of those things where they pay for your thing or you have to pay or how does it work? Yeah, that's a great question. You know? uh, it's a little, it's a little bit of both. So when I, so I was, I was in, sort of entrenched in Los Angeles by the time I decided to go to LA. So going to another, going to like applying to grad schools around the country wasn't really an option for me. I kind of ended up just zeroing in on USC for several reasons. One, a year earlier, I had met Luis Alfaro um, by producing one of his plays at Boston Court where I was working. And I I was only a couple of years into being a playwright when I watched this, you know, experience with him uh, having a play world premiere and the way he interacted with staff and actors and the entire production crew mm -hmm. um was was really sort of like motivating to me to 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 want to be like he's a very generous person very warm open like he will listen to anything you know and he just he had a way of dealing with people that i admired and i learned that he taught at usc and it started to put this idea in my head that uh i maybe I want to go to grad school because I wasn't particularly interested in film and television, which is what brought me to LA in the first place. So I, uh, and I was also, you know, in a marriage at the time. Um, so I wasn't the only person with an opinion on the matter, but I looked at all of the area programs, UCLA, Cal arts. And I even sort of looked into San Diego a little bit because they have such a great reputation um, but with the parameters of, um, not moving anywhere, staying, you know, where, where I'm living and, uh, I need to, I needed to keep my full-time job, which was a humongous factor. Uh, none of these programs were really built to accommodate people working full-time. So I kind of mm -hmm. kept that to myself for a bit. Um, but uh, I just settled on USC. And so I'm like, I'm going all in on USC. USC, because of its physical location and that Luis was taught, was teaching there and the money situation uh, to, to actually get to the answer to your question was um, pretty good, like much better than like uh, CalArts, for example, which is like, I don't think any money came with that program. It was like all 
all loans and cash to to pay for that education and and i'm like i'm not really w- willing to do that um so usc uh you you for two years and i'm not sure what it is today but back when i went the you teach you're a ta for two years in your second and third year and the amount of money that you earn as a ta essentially offsets the costs of the program and in the first what did you ta what did you ta i always theater history classes so like uh you're TAing essentially the first four classes in a series of theater history classes for incoming undergrads in the, in the theater program. Um, so you're teaching the Greeks, you're teaching, you know, all the, all the old shit. Um, so that's kind of the money situation. Uh, I, however, still took out loans because yeah, because you need money to but, live. But I, so <laughs> I, mean, I, I did it kind of like, I was not, I wasn't particularly smart about it. I maintained a full time job, forty hours a week throughout the three years, including when I was teaching. That's amazing! So, oh my, my God. God, were you on crack cocaine? I at the time, at the time, uh, did not consume any alcohol, did not do any drugs. I was just, I don't know, adrenaline. Um, and you were just on it, fire and it was terrible. It was, <laughs> it was so unhealthy. It, it was literally 5am, uh, go do homework and writing, etc. And depending on the class schedule, either go to day job or go to class, come back, go to day job, maybe go to a night class, uh, depending again, depending on the schedule. And then my job was very, very generous with, with my schedule. And I lived very close to work, which was, which was helpful. They allowed me to stretch my schedule however I could seven days a week. So I really was, when class was in session, when we were in semester, I was working seven days a week because I was making up work hours on Saturdays and Sundays, Sure. which meant I didn't do a lot, especially in the first, in the first year, uh, a lot of bonding. I didn't do a lot of like extra activities on campus because I had to GTFO and get to work. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I bet that's, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, Bob, I'll let you say what you're going to say in a second, but I I think that might've had something to do with why you might've been somewhat perceived if you were as a curmudgeon or whatever, because that you you just knew so precisely what the value of the education was, and also because literally your time was so precious. Wherever you were choosing choosing to put your energy at any given moment, literally meant like money for you. Yeah, and that is just a classic thing about people who are coming to theater school when they're young and not a care, not just really not a sense of what it actually means to, to make it in the business versus people that are older. So Boz, go ahead. What you no, say? it's, uh, no, that's exactly right on what I was going to say in terms of uh, like, 
I thought people, because I was young and ridiculous, thought people were being rude. And really those people were actually hustling to live. Some of them had kids, some of them had. And I, I think there's a misunderstanding that like, if you don't bond, if you're not part of the team, if you're, that you're just a jerk, but really it's like these people have fucking lives, you know? And so I think that's some of the weirdness of undergrad and grad, you know, like being, you know. It's just everyone comes into, like you said, in different places. And um, it's just, I was so self-absorbed. I was so self-absorbed. There were people that were just like literally like going to be evicted because they couldn't pay their rent. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So did you, how did it work with the curriculum? Did you, I mean, the, the practical part, did you get to produce your plays? Did you workshop scenes? How did that work? Uh, as part of the program in your second year, you have like a fully produced workshop that okay. is essentially with the undergrad theater students. So you're working with undergrad actors and undergrad designers and stage managers, et cetera, with, with a professional director from outside school. Uh, and that's because I had a friend ahead of me in the program who, when I was a first year, she was a third year. So I already knew a lot about, about the program and the dynamics of it and what to expect. So I knew that the second year was like, that really is your, like your big production that you that happens for you in the three years, and uh, and I've I already at this point had like a an opinion and feelings about how younger actors are thrust into positions that are way outside of their demographic, uh, particularly with age. And I didn't want to I didn't want to have that experience, so I ended up writing a play uh, for age appropriate actors. Uh, and I didn't use a play that I was already sort of writing for a class or like potentially my thesis uh, because I was, because I think some, in some ways, because I was older, I was thinking about characters who were older too. So I didn't want to have middle-aged uh, like a cast of middle-aged folks. And, and I wanted to get something out of the experience and I wanted them to get something out of the experience. So I wrote a play about teenagers Um to give them characters that they could really sink their teeth into. What I think I'm that's getting... literally what Eric Bogosian did. Yeah, he was yeah when he was getting his degree. He did in the same thing. And also, you know what? I the word that keeps coming to mind for you is strategic. Oh yes, dude, the shit was strategic. Like, it, it, I think that comes with age and experience and like hard knocks is we learn, at least I'll speak for myself, how to be more strategic instead of just throwing shit around and seeing what sticks bumbling around. So you were a more strategic student. So how did your play go with the team? How was it? <laughs> I, again, depends on who you ask. Uh, I'm asking you. I you, had you. the best experience. I loved my cast. I still love them today. I love my director. Uh, still, like we maintained a friendship after this was all over. Uh, I just, I just loved the experience so much. It was a play about runaway teenagers and them finding uh, like the found family that is created when they are out in the streets trying, trying to survive. And it was the best 
best experience so much. I uh, I would. What's it called? What's it called? It's, it's uh, called. Uh, what is it called now? It was called Tales from Tent City when I did it Ooh. when I did it back then. Uh, and now there's sort of like what sounds like a bit of an esoteric title, but it's now called Dance and Crawl and Sing and Fall. And oh. and the title the title comes from in the play. It's a play with songs, so there are like I remember like maybe like seven songs. One of the characters is like a busker, and so uh, that's a the title now is a lyric from one of the songs in the play. Um, so yeah, uh, I love it. And I ended up having just a side note. I ended up having uh, the opportunity to workshop it with other college age students over the years uh at two other colleges and that's really just sort of super fulfilling and i really enjoyed that the the uh, thing that's sticking out to me about the first part of our conversation was this you were talking about um finding acceptance that you were going to be buried under a pile of your unproduced plays now you have published plays just not produced plays if, I, if I've got that right. And it's very timely that we're interviewing you this week because of what just went down with the blacklist, um, opening up their services such as they are to playwrights for, and so the kerfuffle for people who don't know is that most playwrights have their plays um, on new play exchange, which has a flat fee per, per month for, for hosting your plays and your profile and the blacklist as far as I understand, although Franklin Leonard came out and maybe made some clarifications, but it's $30 per month per script, per script. And like, and Brian James, you have a lot of plays on new play exchange. So that would be completely exorbitantly expensive for you. So I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, it is really sort of like a collision between uh, capitalism and art in a big way. And from, I mean, Franklin Leonard might correct me, but it seems like the blacklist is a, is a business endeavor, right? So you have to look at it like a business endeavor. There is a profit to be made. There are employees, right? There are people to be paid, et cetera. Um, and I think it's like, I think it's, it's, a, it's also a collision between um, what's normal and usual in the film and television world and what's normal and usual in the theater world. And uh, film and television is very much more a capitalistic endeavor and theater is very much not that. Like we are not making money. Nobody is, is writing plays to make money uh, and nobody's making a living as a, as a playwright. Um, I So with that said, and I followed this, this discussion online and, and read a lot of what uh, Franklin has said about it. And I think he's a, he's a very good representative for this project that he started, you know, and I think this project has been for screenwriters uh, really kind of wonderful because there before the blacklist, there were very few uh, sort of open access channels for people to sort of, to have that feeling of it's, it's a little bit more democratized for a screenwriter to, to get seen. It's an opportunity, but there is costs to it. I would not look at it like uh, uh, the new play exchange because the new play exchange is actually a one year or a one. It's like $12 a year for new play exchange to host as many plays as you feel like. 
And uh, you just can't compare the two. On on uh, the blacklist, if I was to use it, I would find my one strongest play and maybe host it uh, during this free cycle. Like he's allowing plays to be hosted for free for a period of time. But the, the, the sort of like catch on, on the blacklist is you pay for reviews and it's the reviews that sort of bump your, your work up. So if you get a strong review of your play, you earn more time on the site and the more positive reviews you get, the the likely more likelihood it is that that other people will see the script. But it does take it yeah. does take investment. It, I mean, basically, well, basically, it's all a multi level marketing scam. I mean, <laughs> I know that it's not, but that is what my no, it is because it? for the majority of plays that are written, there is no end user. I mean, if you take every single play that's being written in twenty twenty two, even you know, 1% of them have an end user, i.e. A, a, a theater that's going to produce it. And all the rest is just... Okay. Yeah. So the other thing that I'm really wondering is like, okay, so I'm in this, in LA, um, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting a lot of people and a lot of them are playwrights turned television writers, right? And that's how they're making their money now. And so I'm wondering if also, frankly, he, I mean, he's picked up on that, right? And he's like, okay, so Hollywood wants real writers playwrights i did quotes air quotes you know like they think playwrights have the answers a lot of time to television problems and um so i'm wondering if it's all it's all just theaters all it's all just getting turned into this sort of hollywood like stuff it's just amazing it could could be i i honestly think franklin's uh in it for the right reasons. I don't think he's trying to scam people. He, he seems to, because no. he's really, he's answering every question and he's confronting yeah, no, everything yeah. and, and he's being honest and sincere. I really just think it's a mentality that we're, we are very used to in the screenwriting world of paying a lot of fees. Like fees are all over the place <laughs> yes. uh, in a way that it's just, it's just not, uh, it's becoming less and less common uh, in the theater world. Um, and so I just think it's like a collision of two things that maybe don't belong together, you know? Uh, right. But, right. We'll have but to seem see. like I they mean, should like, we'll like what... writing is writing, right? Dramatic writing is dramatic writing. So on the surface, it seems like these two things could coexist well, but I, I just think that the dynamics are just, the worlds are just so unbelievably different that it's causing all this conflict. So I have a question for both of you guys. I directed a play um, in my town a couple of years ago, and uh, we like like is the perennial story. We're having a hard time getting tickets, so I, as much as I could, would paper the house by just inviting people that uh, that I knew who wouldn't otherwise. And so many of them had never seen a play before. So many of them, it was their first time, and and it there was just. So, so so many people saying like, oh, wow, plays. I never really would have thought that, you know, I would enjoy going to a theater. Now, <clears throat> I attribute that to the fact that we don't have really anything in the way of arts education in our public school but systems. But what what else is the answer? Why else? Is it because of money? Is it because it's so much cheaper to watch television and see movies? 
I mean, because people pay handsomely, for example, for the experience of going to see a football game. What, you know, why don't people find inherent value in seeing live performance? Uh, I have a, a roundabout answer to this. Shocking. Um, I spent some time in Poland during my, uh, during grad school and after grad school, I took several trips to Poland and I got introduced to the way the Polish people and uh, Europeans interact with theater. And my first trip was in, was in 2012 in my second semester of, of school. And I met all these playwrights and I attended um, a play, a, 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 like a, a theater festival, all these amazing Polish productions of plays and, it's, it is like, uh, we're talking about, like just a moment ago, we we're talking about how uh, the film and television world is colliding with the theater world. I think comparing the way the public interacted with theater in Poland with the way people do in the United States is like two, it's, you can't, you almost can't compare it because it's just so unbelievably different. It's part of the cultural fabric there. Like going to the theater mm. is one of the options alongside going to the movies in in warsaw poland where i where i was and i was like astounded by it and a lot of it is because um and this is changing in poland and and other eastern and central european countries but um the government supports the theaters there are public several public theaters that aren't spending 90 percent of their time fundraising they're spending their time on the art and there are playwrights that money trickles down to them. Um, these playwrights that I met on this first trip to Poland are supported. They don't have, like, they were, they were surprised to hear about our job situation. Play, like playwrights having <laughs> day jobs and things that working in day jobs that uh. aren't related to the making of theater. Um, and that was the kind of the status quo. And I think that's like, it's a, it's a, the, the difference is so cultural. It's so different. It's, you can't take this some kind of secret sauce and apply it here and then, and then make the things change. It's like teaching plays that aren't Shakespeare from a young age so that there's an understanding that these, this, these are works that are created today by living writers, just like there are novels that are created by living writers today. I think, speaking for myself as a student, I didn't know theater was something that was made today when I was a kid, when I was growing up. I thought all the theater, I, think all, I thought all the plays were already written. And that right. plays that were produced were, were already written in the past. And it wasn't an active contemporary art form. And that's because my public school upbringing included some Shakespeare and nothing else. And then right. anything that I saw was like guys and dolls, you know, West Side right. Story. It was, it was all from a before I was born era. And, uh, and I think that's part of, that's part of it. It's like, we don't value our living writers in a way that, that uh, we used to maybe, maybe, maybe. Why? What happened? I don't, I don't, I don't have capitalism. Capitalism is probably the, the reason for everything, but <laughs> everything that's going wrong. But, 
uh, I don't know. I think we maybe we need, maybe need to start a podcast that is about capitalism and uh, theater. <laughs> yeah, like I I definitely feel like um, I, I feel like I don't understand either. Like what? But I know this that that television somehow we made television work. Like right. Brian, like Brian, people, Brian, people pay for television now, Mm -hmm. streaming services, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not, it's not just plug in. So we value streaming services. We just don't value theater like we used to. And now with the pandemic, of course, that's a whole nother thing. But even way before that, obviously, like you're talking about, it's interesting. It's like we want, so I studied, and maybe you did too. Like I, I studied uh, for a while the history of film, right? And history of film writing and history of, and so, and then, and and how it, in my understanding, how it started was like, they had, you know, obviously there were silent films, blah, blah, blah. And when they started to write titles and when they started to write things and scripts and they, in the invention of sound uh, uh, for for films came they needed people to write the titles and write the things so they went to they didn't know who to go to right so they went to they went to journalists and then when and the journalists were all exhausted they went to to the theater piece to theater folks right so i'm just i wonder if they're and now what i'm seeing is literally everyone i talk to is like Oh, you want to get repped by a manager? You want to get it? You want to get into a room writing for television, which is what I'm trying to do. They're like, right, start writing plays. I'm like, wait, what is happening? So we go to the theater when we are looking for quality, and yet we are not willing to pay people to actually do the theater. It's so interesting. It's like when the theater folks can be used to to make Hollywood look good, we will go to the theater meaning we will pluck the talent from the theater, usually in Chicago, New York and other places, and then and then bring them to LA. But it's like we don't inherently value the freaking theater. It's so weird to me. And yet also we have conservatories where people pay, pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to actually still study the arts. Yes, I agreed with all of that. And I'll add that uh, from the perspective of like a regular everyday person, where do you need to go to access all the great film and television? Like, look over my shoulder. Like, I have to go t- two feet behind me to sit on a couch to turn it on yeah. and watch it. And if I live in the middle of nowhere, like northern Wisconsin, where's the nearest theater? Who right. knows? You, you, you don't right. know. It's just like, it's, it's just not as ubiquitous and not as easy to access. It's just like... The TV is very easy to access. The theater takes not just monetary investment, but time and physical. Like you need to get up out of your seat and get in the car. Go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. There's so much. Yeah, and I actually kind of think that the another sort of debate that that's been happening since the pandemic is this very tired <laughs> debate about whether, you know, digital theater is real theater and theater has long had this Luddite sort of um, backbone where, you know, probably it, to me, it feels like sour grapes. Like ever since movies came along, it's, there's just been this rejection of technology. But one of the best ideas I've ever heard for how to ameliorate this problem that we're talking about of theater not being part of our cultural fabric is from Jeremy O'Harris, who really is into this idea of 
bringing VR to schools oh, so right. that kids can see plays, but it feels somewhat more like it probably isn't exactly the same, but so that it feels somewhat more like being there than, you know, watching something on video. And I, and I feel like maybe where the dam is going to break is we're going to have to come to the under, to, we're going to have to come to really embrace technology, not just so that we have cool lighting grids, but like in all of the ways for accessibility for this very reason, because we're a part of the problem if we're not making it more accessible, right? Yeah, I love the accessibility that has sort of spawned out of the the pandemic timeline that we're still living in. Uh, and I love the people that are embracing it and trying to find ways to, to spread this out and embrace it. If it's theater, if you think it's theater, from my from my perspective, but ultimately, I feel like theater is never going to go away. Like theater is always going to be meaningful because it's meaningful to some people and it's not for everybody. And I think I think if we're trying to make it for everybody, we're we're fighting a losing fight. And maybe that's not the point. I think the point is to uh, keep an eye start locally. You know, you're building your art locally and you're working with people in person locally and you're starting you're starting there and who are the people that you can find locally. Uh, and, and then that's your base. And then you can build out from there. You can use VR, you can use, you know, uh, all kinds of digital theater to, to expand outward. But I think if you maintain a focus on uh, the, the local ideal, then I think, I think you can be okay, but it's just theaters is never going to be, this money-making thing where everybody's going to be able to live a sustainable life um, because they're just, it's not for enough people the way that film and television is for millions and millions more. It's so interesting. Yeah. So I wonder then about the necessity for theater schools. <laughs> like yeah. what, right. I mean, like, look, if we're, and I, I, there is no answer, but like these, and I think that's what we're seeing in conservatories are like struggling to stay relevant and to say, no, no, no. Training as a theater actor or a playwright is still essential when the job, when you can't really make a living at it, is it essential? I mean, I, it's so unless the government gets gets involved and funds it, unless somebody funds the shit, it's going to be interesting to see if theater conservatories, especially for acting, stay around theater wise. Unless you know, because like film and TV yeah. classes, you you know you can do on Zoom and but I teach theater yeah. on Zoom, right? So it is a very bizarre thing. But I find myself as I'm teaching these kiddos at conservatories on Zoom because of the pandemic. I am naturally, naturally teaching more film and television skills because that's what we're on. And and it's hard to teach freaking theater on Zoom. And it just is. And masks and all that shit, you know? And the students are together and masked. I can't see what the fuck's going on. So, but anyway, it's just, it's, it's just a really, really interesting time. And it's also, I think it's good that we're starting to have at least, you know, the conversations about all this stuff because... Yeah, if not, we're gonna. It's just, it's just gonna be miserable for everybody involved. Yeah, you know? I think but. that for theater schools, I think it's valuable if it's valuable to you. If it, if right. it's meaningful, if it means something to you, 
like you're the one person that gets to say whether or not it matters uh taking like attending these schools and learning and learning about theater and acting or playwriting or directing uh i think where it becomes dangerous is when schools give the uh impression that you when you graduate there's going to be some kind of like a uh, promise of a professional life based on what you just learned. That's right. just, that's the fallacy. Um, so you can't, like, this is not a, this is not a, a study that's going to lead to uh, a promise of jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you're yeah. okay with that, I was okay with that attending, attending grad school and getting my MFA because I knew it wasn't going to promise me anything. Uh, and I, so I was like, that's fine. And I, so I didn't have that as part of my experience and my expectation of right. graduating. I hoped, like I have hoped ever since that every play uh, sure. would lead to something, but I, I'm, you know, I'm aware that that's, I'm not in control of that. So we've talked a lot about how every single person who, who goes to an acting program hears multiple times and from multiple sources, you know, there's a, there's almost a 0% chance that you will be able to make a living as an actor, just FYI. And then everybody to a person says, yeah, okay, but I'm, I'm going to be the exception. Did you have that thought when you were leaving your MFA? That I would be like an exception. Yes, I did because uh, I saw there's uh, this playwright who I love, Madri Shaker, uh, who was a year ahead of me. She won. She won an award before. So before I was at USC, there USC wasn't producing a lot of award-winning playwrights. Uh, they were producing a lot of playwrights. The, the 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 carrot at the end of the stick of USC's program is the film school, because when I attended, uh, playwright playwright students were kind of Trojan horse into the film school. You were allowed to take a right. lot of film classes at USC. And that was a, that would draw, would draw, would draw a lot of people into the program. Madri came in and she won this great uh, theater, this playwriting award. I can't, now I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it led to a lot of success for her. And, and in the theater, in the theater or in the film in and the television. Theater. Oh, in the wow. And I was like, Madri did it. I can do it. And so uh, I desperately wanted to win the same award that she won because I saw the ripple effect. Like it led to this, it led to this, it led to this, it led to this. And my hubris had me believing that I was, you know, special and that I was going to win that. And I didn't, I didn't even come, wasn't even a finalist for it. But however, I did win a couple Kennedy Center uh, College Theater Festival awards I won two coming in my final semester of grad school. And uh, as far as I know, no other USC writer before me had won any of these. And I got two of them. And and it was a, unbelievable. It was like amazing. And, and yeah. I really thought that uh, this would anoint me in some way. So I sure. did, so I went in very much aware this doesn't lead to this anything promised, and but I came out with some uh, winning things I didn't go in expecting to win, 
and and thinking that oh I'm I because every year there's a cycle of students graduating with MFAs and a handful of them become anointed uh, to to the, the commissions and all the things and I thought I was going to be in that group when I sure. came out and I wasn't I was just another uh, writer and that was a little surprising to me and deflating. Go ahead, boss. I was going to say, like, I just have to say, I was so touched hearing that you won those two awards. I mean, it's cool that you won them, but I think a deeper meaning for me is like, as human beings, we must have the hope that we are the exception or we wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do anything. <laughs> so like I have to hold, we're so desperately clinging, especially into the arts, in the arts, I think, and entertainment worlds that we are the exception and, and maybe in everything, like when we're diagnosed with something or when we're a loved one is, I am a firm, I love and will stand behind people that think they are the exception every time because it's, it's like part of what is so beautiful about being a human being. And the only thing that keeps me going sometimes is hearing these stories. And um, anyway, whatever. That's just what I thought when you were talking was like, of course, like we need. Yeah. This. Yeah. You're right. You're right. No, it's, it's, it's part of our design. It's built into our, you know, wiring. Cause otherwise, yeah. Why, why would we keep going? So, but what, what Brian, what is your understanding of what, what, what has been the disconnect in terms of, people wanting to make your amazing award-winning plays into productions. I mean, there are a multitude of reasons. And I think some of it is I'm not right. Like I haven't written the right play at the right time. Like the plays that I've written just uh, aren't landing with people. Um, I'm not as good as I think I am. And sometimes the plays that maybe are good enough are, it's just so hard to find the right eyes to get your play in front of them that my plays have just, you know, I'm not represented. I, I haven't, I've never been represented. I've been hustling on my own all along. And I, uh, like you talked about, you described me as strategic when I was in, when I was in grad school. And that's kind of like, I kind of like cringe a little bit at that word, but it is the right word. Um, I, I try, like I follow every opportunity I can find. And, uh, and I follow through whenever I can. And, and it just, I think, I think the biggest reason is because I just haven't written the right play at the right time and gotten it to the right person. I don't, I don't believe I'm a good writer. I know I'm a good writer, but I also know that there are a million good writers out there. And I know there are a lot of great plays that don't see the light of day. You know, I, I, this is one of the things I've learned doing the podcast is that there are so many playwrights um, writing and working and trying really hard and just not getting there. I also think that the, the, the history of theater has been the majority of uh, privileged white cisgendered men. Uh, And I came up, I've been coming up at a time when, the industry is trying to push back on that and not just elevate the same people that it has elevated for generations. And uh, is that a contributing factor? Probably, but like, it's not one I'm complaining about because it's, I understand, you know, and I I understand. Right. So I guess, 
I can ask your, you because you're you're you seem like a really open dude. How do you work with you personally? And there's you know because how do you how do you um, reckon with that? Like how do you say like I'm a good writer and maybe it's not my time. So then what the fuck do you do? Like I literally don't know. What do you do? Yeah. Well, I don't feel entitled to anything. So that's kind of my starting point. I'm not entitled to success. I'm not entitled for this mm. next play to be read by the Pulitzer Committee or or be produced on Broadway or be even given a Zoom reading. You know, like, <laughs> I don't think I'm entitled to any of it. And because that's kind of my starting point, it makes my mm. ability to just continue working a little bit easier. What I care about is... Uh, writing the next play and just doing the best I can with it. And then where it goes, I can control like so little of it. And part of, part of my journey to get to this point of view, because I haven't always been, you know, like this is thinking about the concept of success and what success means and and how and I've come, and this question comes up a lot in my podcast. Like, what is success to you? And uh, everybody has very different answers to it. And I've decided that it, success is a, is is the, is fluid, and we define success for ourselves. Yeah. And if I'm going to say the only way for me to be a success or my new play to be a success is it needs to win a Pulitzer and go to Broadway, then uh, I'm I'm setting myself up for a lot of sadness. So I've yeah, decided that yeah. success to me is working as hard as I can to write the best play I can. And at the end of the day, if I've done that work and I'm happy with the thing I created, then that's success. I love that. I love that. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb and make a prediction that either later in your life or god forbid posthumously people will discover your work and they'll come back and listen to this podcast <laughs> and they'll say he said it he said it right there and because and the reason i'm saying that is because that stance you're adopting of not feeling entitled is truly the only stance to have like it's like the if only you don't way. have that stance you're doing something wrong because it, yeah, yeah, and I just love that you that it's like I think you said it. We got to start somewhere. And I think like you've said it, we start and we always talk about it on this podcast, but like it's an inside job, right? So like and I was just listening to Tiknot Han who passed away saying like he, he, he literally he's not even making a we you're not even like making a pie in the sky kind of thing. It's like I have to start from the starting point of where am I coming at? this work from and it and and being honest about it because we talk a lot too like if you want to make a bajillion dollars and if you can be honest about that then you know okay i want to be a playwright that then gets into television that then runs a show and then voila i'm rich or whatever but if you literally are like no no what matters to me value wise is creating good art with good people and I am willing to do that. And even if it means that my financial abundance does not come from it, I think it's a lot, you're at least being honest. 
and you're and saying okay so like maybe i will die like you said it brings it all full circle so maybe i will die under a pile of unpublished maybe not unpublished works maybe not but i'm willing to do it because i want to make good art the willingness is is going to save us all it really is i I like i like what you're saying uh and 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 gina that you're saying that i'm maybe posthumously right i i keep thinking about how uh I'm dead under a pile of plays and somebody's like, what's that smell? And they come <laughs> into the room and they push away these scripts and they're like, oh, Brian died. Hey, wait. Welcome. This is a great fucking welcome play. To New Hampshire. This is interesting. What's this play? And they sit in the room. <laughs> they read this play and then they're like, oh, wait, I still have to do something about this dead person here. Yeah, they're like, we better call the guy. But <laughs> And then, and then they're like, wait, how did this happen? Yeah. <laughs> he was just laying on the ground and somebody started paper throwing cuts. a bunch of scripts at his head. Cuts. <laughs> he had a death by yeah, one million paper, paper cuts. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you. <laughs>